VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, October the 6th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is the fellow you'll be speaking to when you give us a shout to get in the queue and on the air to talk about whatever's on your mind. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, I would have loved to have been in Twillingate yesterday or Gander today for Stanley Cup Fever. Some really great clips coming up, for instance, from J.M. Olds Collegiate, where they had a visit with the Stanley Cup and the cheers that go with it. And you know the deal, if you've ever been around the Cup, whether you be a child or an adult, everyone becomes very childlike because a lot of Canadians really have a lot of time for the lauded Stanley Cup. But anyway, good luck tonight. The big game out at the Steel Community Centre in Gander between Ottawa and Montreal goes tonight, and hopefully folks have a good time. However, we did see uh, yesterday, it's really prestigious to get, get to host an Atlantic Championship. And the good, uh, the good folks at the Paradise Minor Hockey Association, they're going to host the 2023 U13 Atlantics, March 30th to the 2nd of April, always a big deal to host that type of tourney, so good on them. But I suppose many of you are following along with the ever-growing scandal with every word uttered at Parliamentary Committee testimony and all of the revelations about slush funds set aside to settle lawsuits regarding sexual violence and 15 investigations into allegations of sexual assault and Hockey Canada is failing us miserably. They really truly are. It's so disheartening and it's so disgraceful. So Hockey Quebec said yesterday that they're not going to support Hockey Canada. They're going to stop transferring the money to the national entity. It's about three bucks per player. There's some complexities there about how you still insure your minor hockey players because Hockey Canada takes care of that stuff. But you wonder, will Hockey Newfoundland and Labrador follow suit? I bet you uh, Quebec won't be the last province to do what they're doing. But here's what's almost, well, the most unfortunate thing is any of these things happened. But what's really going to push the needle at Hockey Canada is when their sponsors start walking away like they are. Scotiabanks and Tim Hortons and TELUS walking away from even the most prestigious event they hold, the World Juniors. So they're going to continue to support women's tournaments and para-hockey. But, you know, that's what's going to drive Hockey Canada to do something about this. Tear it down. Everyone who was ever involved at any level knowing about these allegations should have to be removed or step aside immediately. But if you want to take it on, as much as we'd love to talk about my favorite sport... This is a massive issue that needs to be decided, and I wonder what Hockey NL will do about this. Anyway, let's keep going. Today in history, 1889, Thomas Edison had the first motion picture projected. Fast forward to 1927 when the jazz singer became the first real prominent movie, a talkie as they call it, to be hit in the silver screen. That was in 27. Let's go back to 1889 for a second. 133 years ago today, the Moulin Rouge Cabaret opened for the first time in Gay Paris, of course, the home, home base for the high-stepping can-can, which was absolutely scandalous at the time. Still open to this day. People recognize because of the red windmill, of course. So 60 dancers hit the stage for two shows per night. They entertain some 600,000 audience members each year. And, of course, many people will be familiar with Nicole Kidman and Ewan McGregor. 2001 Oscar-nominated film Moulin Rouge. Okay, let's keep going. This is another lighthearted one before we get into it. Have you seen the video, which is kind of funny, and the story associated with the cheating and sport fishing? So this was in, in Ohio. So they brought in these fish, and they cut them open, and lo and behold, Buddy had stuffed lead pellets in them. <laughs> lead pellets 
in the fish and some processed uh, fish fillets also in there to add to the weight. But Canadian sport fishermen say it's happening here too. It harkens back to 2016. Remember the big brouhaha out of Dildo Pond when they had their fishing derby? And a fella brought in this big eel. It was the heaviest species hauled out of the water that day. Even though the rules said it's only browns and brooks uh, eligible for the prize. But he argued to the ends of the earth that his eel should have won. They came back in 2019. And now it was all species coming out of the dildo pond except for eels. That story just pops in my mind every now and then. Okay. And the big story, I guess, is the announcement yesterday about some cost of living benefit checks to be rolled out. I'm not so sure about this one. I, I know people are struggling. And there's also some timing associated with this. The big announcement coming on the day when they resumed the fall sitting at the House of Assembly, which is now for a couple of days at Colonial Building. But here's some big numbers. $522 million said had to be invested at Bay to Spare. When you add in the cost of fuel and operations at Holy Road for an extended amount of time, that's a billion dollars plus. The province projected a deficit of $351 million for this year. The net debt is going to be somewhere over $17 billion. But for the sake of the $194 million out the door because of this program, that's just some numbers for context. All right, so the government says because of maybe unanticipated increased revenues, largely associated with oil, that they're able to do this. They recognize folks are struggling. Okay, I get it too. I hear it all the time. But there are some curious factors surrounding this pot of money. Let's get to it. So you know the deal. If you have filed your taxes, and you still have to the end of the year to file your taxes to get to this benefit, if you make uh, $100,000 or less, you're going to get a one-time check of 500 bucks. They hope to have it out before Christmas. If you make up to 125 you can get maybe up to 250 bucks. Okay. This is where the measure of income threshold makes a huge difference. As opposed to applying the lens of net family income, they chose to go with individuals. So, I've heard people paint this picture, and they're not wrong. So, you could have mom and dad or two people in the home earning $90,000 each, and they're going to get 1000 bucks. And a single mother earning $30,000 is going to get $500. That doesn't really make much sense. Then they go on to tell us that it's a tax-free benefit. Okay, but what kind of relationship does the Department of Finance here have with the Department of Finance in Ottawa? Because the government here can really only control the provincial portion of the tax, so we're talking millions of dollars associated with the federal tax. Has that been waived formally by the federal government? I don't know, but they're calling it a tax-free benefit. There's 392,000 Newfoundlanders and Labradorians will get this check based on their earnings, their net income uh, reported to CRA in 2021. Okay. There's about 162 or 163,000 Newfoundlanders and Labradorians working. Now we know you don't have to be working to have to file taxes. For instance, folks who are retirees and what have you. And they haven't backed out whether or not you had to be an actively employed person because people have asked me already, so I'm on social assistance and what have you, do I get the check? Well, as far as we know, as long as you file your taxes and they don't reflect earnings above $125,000, you're going to get it. Okay. The long-term view of this, and we can't determine or dictate how people spend the money. Like I heard one of my colleagues here in the building say that they're going to put it directly to the bills that are piling up. Some people may put 500 bucks worth of furnace oil in their tank. Some may indeed buy Christmas presents and or stock up their liquor cabinet or who knows what. And it's not for me to say what you should do with the money coming in the door. But it does reflect the fact that it is the epitome of short-term relief. And for some people, this will be the be-all and end-all. It might make them sigh a breath of relief yesterday and certainly more so when they get their check. 
But how do we deal with what are the long-term issues here? This isn't it. I don't begrudge anybody getting this check. And if you think that it's a problem, it's going to contribute to inflation, or you think that this is the socialism that you fear, send it back. But what does this mean for the long-term plans? Like when they increase the provincial income support program by 10%, that's a long-term vision and to try and ease people's pain. But where do we deal with cost of living from a governmental angle? We don't really want them too deeply involved in a lot of pricing. You know, yes, the liability insurance has gone through the roof, up by a couple hundred percent. And yes, the price of, of everything we touch has gone up. You know, just when we hear the announcement of this, we learn overnight that the price of gas is going up again. So what does that mean with this $500 or $250? We know that the seasonal worry now with the price of furnace oil has gone up. In and around here, it's about hovering between buck fifty, buck sixty liter. It was over two bucks there for a while. In October of twenty twenty one, it was a dollar oh five. So where are the long term solutions? I just don't know. This is going to help for some, but it's a curious play, and I don't know how much it's going to achieve. Yes, if you've got your eyes set on that money, and you know exactly where that five hundred bucks is so desperately needed, fair enough. But when that five hundred bucks is gone. We're still right back to square one. So what's the additional vision here or things that government may or may not be able to do to deal with the long-term worry? Because that's really what's happening. Even when we see some food inflation has been stabilized over the last couple of months. But we see the price of fuels and the volatility therein. So again, what do we actually do about any of these things? There's going to be a parliamentary inquiry into the prices at the major grocery stores. There's thought out there that corporations are seeing the inflation issue and they're adjusting the, price or the prices upwards. There was apparently some file clerk at one of the major grocery chains that says they have evidence that the grocery stores have priced themselves above the rate of inflation, so consequently more profits. Sylvain Charlebois, a man we deal with quite often here at VOCM, he's a professor of agriculture studies at uh, Dalhousie University, he says he's seen the data that the grocery stores may indeed see increased profit, but increased overhead and input cost. So by percentage purposes, they're not making any more than they were in the past. Okay, we'll see what comes out of it. And then it's the question about who gets to determine what's a legitimate amount of profit in the grocery store world. I don't know. But you couple all these things together, and even when inflation comes back to earth a little bit more, does that mean that the prices will follow? It generally hasn't been the case. When prices go up, we wait an awful long time for them to come back down. It's easy enough for all hands involved in monetary and fiscal policy and in government policy to see an atmosphere or a landscape where the prices can increase, but much more difficult when we talk about trying to get some control in place. Now, in the world of price gouging, in the United States, they're cracking down on what they're calling excessive profits and price gouging based on inflation, for instance, in the beef industry. Is there an opportunity for some government invention for a price freeze on some of the staples that we all need in the grocery store? I don't know. And I don't think we're going to find out very much with this parliamentary inquiry into the prices at the grocery stores. But I guess we'll see what comes of it. So if you want to comment on that particular story, because that's a big one. And again, we only throw out all the numbers because all the numbers are required to get some context for how we can view and discuss this particular issue. And just to go back to it. The program's going to cost $194 million. We just heard a couple of days ago we need to invest $522 million at Beta Spare and more monies for Holyrood. The forecast of the provincial deficit was $351 million. The net debt of the province will be in excess of $17 billion. I know people need the help, 
But this has got to be coupled with more understanding about what governments can and should do to help people in the long term, because this just isn't it. If you want to take it on, we can do exactly that. We know folks have maxed out their credit cards, right? For instance. And so this one, while we're all very mindful of what we're paying, and you look through this squinted eye at the computer screen at the till at the grocery store just to see how much everything costs, and the Taco Tuesday bill, which was once $30, is now $43. We all know these things to be true. And so using your credit card. People like their credit cards for convenience, for the rewards, for benefits associated with them. Like if you have the WestJet MasterCard and you get an opportunity to get a, a break on your fare to fly or whatever credit card you use. But now retailers are going to be allowed to pass along the fee that they pay to the credit card companies to you, the customer. Now they have to give a 30-day notice. They have to tell you up front that you'll see a surcharge. It can be as much as 2.4%, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it sure is when you factor in everything else that we've seen. So the credit card companies making off like bandits, right? You know, they, they just simply are. Whether it be Visa, MasterCard, or whoever credit card that you carry, retailers are going to be able to pass along that fee that they pay. And it is expensive for them. F to allow for the convenience of accepting a credit card, they pay a fee to the credit card company, which they used to eat or to cover. And now they're going to be allowed to pass it along to you. And you know full well, most of them will. And then you go to pay your telephone bill with your credit card, your mobile phone, your package that you have with whatever company. TELUS has put forward a position at the CRTC that they want to be able to pass on their credit card fee to you. So while everything else in the perfect storm of rising costs, cost of living, affordability, inflation, now some of the ways we use our credit card, some of it's out of necessity for many, now you're going to pay additional fees because the companies don't want to pay them anymore. They're happy enough if you're the customer. They're happy enough if you come through the door. They're happy enough if you sign up online. But no, they're not going to cover their end of the bargain any longer. They're going to pass it on to you. So, you know, this is a regulatory issue. So I guess a regulatory issue becomes a governmental issue. But these are just, it's all adding up. <laughs> it is all adding up in an absolute hurry. How are we doing on the telephone there this morning, Dave? Now, there are endless issues to be discussed, and we're keeping our eye on the concerns and the, r the aftermath and the cleanup of Fiona, and an interesting one on that front. So, well in excess of 100 reservists have been deployed to the southwest coast. Testimony given in Parliament yesterday from former national security advisors and generals and the like saying that members of the military should not be the first option to aid in cleanup. You know, with the demands on the military, recruitment down. It used to be they were the last resort. Now, as per some of these folks uh, testifying, say they've become the first resort or the only resort. All right. It might not be their personal, uh, their personal position doesn't mean that the military should be used like that, but if they're here and they're reservists or they're on bases in Canada, I know there's a lot of important military training to do, but they've got so much knowledge and civil engineers and the horsepower to come and help. So I'm not so sure why we're bemoaning the fact that the military's been deployed to help out. It may indeed be time to talk about the hierarchy, the priority list of who gets called out to help out. But the military doesn't think it should be them. Well, I think they do play an absolute role in these types of things. But look, whatever you want to tackle today, I'm up for conversation on any front. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openlinefaocm.com. My favorite is when you pick up the phone and give us a call like the people in the queue have done. We appreciate their time, and we're looking forward to speaking with you right after this.
Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Uh, let's start at the top of the board. Line number one, caller, you're on the air. How you doing? Doing okay. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good, but I can't stand away to pay for paints out Newfoundlanders here like yesterday's front line on the news here. Pardon me? What are, what are you getting at? Well, the telegram yesterday says, begging for money in downtown St. John's, the street view. Mm-hmm. That makes us Newfoundlanders look pretty bad, you know? How's that? I mean, that's the reality right across the country. And I think the story was intended to be not only human interest, but to paint a picture of what the reality is for folks who maybe it's an addiction issue, maybe it's a mental health issue, and we're seeing more and more of it on the streets. I noticed it as well. So I don't think it was trying to paint anyone in a negative light. It's given folks an understanding that the problems that we knew existed are getting worse. And I can guarantee you, as someone who's traveled across the country that is not that is not a new phenomenon this like we haven't seen the type of homelessness in our streets as i've seen in other major canadian cities over the years and it seems to be getting more and more prevalent so i think painting a picture to identify what's happening is is intended to be helpful not to be negative and paint us in a terrible light that's just how i read it well, I'll tell you one thing, Patty. Mm-hmm. We're Newfoundlanders, and we've always been told in Newfoundland that we reach out and help Newfoundlanders because we always got Newfoundlanders' backs, and we love Newfoundland, and we're Newfoundlanders. Right. And to put that on the front page of the telegram, begging for money, addicted to crack in downtown St. John's. Do you know what? We're not addicted to crack every Newfoundlander. Nobody we said they love are. each other. We help each other. People come to me to help them with all kinds of issues. I'm hungry. Can you give me some money? I'm starving. I'm homeless. And I will give anyone the last cent out of my purse to help a Newfoundlander because we always reach out, Patty. But doesn't, but doesn't the story... Hold on a second. But doesn't the story paint the picture that not everybody's getting that type of generous help? Not everybody has someone like you to turn to for some assistance on the private level. I love Newfoundland. You do? You, I, Mental I, health, Patty, and addiction. The government wants to help people in Newfoundland. And I understand that the pandemic has put a lot of people over the edge in different things, especially an aging population in Newfoundland. But, you know, we are Newfoundlanders, and we're proud Newfoundlanders. I'm one of them, and I'm 60 years old. And we're good people, and we know that not every Newfoundlander is going to beg for money because they have addictions. But nobody said that. We are good Newfoundland people, Patty. But nobody said any of those things. The government got a lot of prices raised in that. I got people telling me the rent went up uh, $200 without a notice. They got the groceries raised and gas and cigarettes. I don't smoke and all this stuff. But, you know, we are good Newfoundlanders in general, and we always reach out and help each other in Newfoundland and Labrador. We try. And they don't have to put that in the telegram of Wednesday over the fifth that we're yeah, begging okay. for money all, all right. we're addicted to crack we're not all addicted to crack but listen hold on a second just hold on yes I, I heard that part but the fact of the matter is that's what's happening that story could have appeared on the front page of every single newspaper across the country 
That's the facts of the matter. And yes, people are happy and willing and wanting to help, but some people are not and getting help. And they've got to put more money to government out there in Confederation Building into addictions and mental health. Okay, so doesn't stories like that help everybody, including you, including me, and people who are members of the government, to understand just yeah. how pr- the problem is yeah. the reality? Addictions, addictions. What are you yelling addictions about? Addictions and mental health, Patty. What are you That's yelling about? The government got to put their money in Newfoundland. Why are you people yelling? With addictions. Why are you yelling? Okay, David, you should put it back on here. Anyway, look, the those stories. They're the difficult ones to write. They're the really difficult ones to read. And they become increasingly complicated to address. You know, it's easy enough to say, if you have an addiction, get help. If you have a mental health concern, get help. But it's not as easy as that. Uh, Okay, let's continue this for another few seconds before we say goodbye, okay? Keep going. Patty, don't worry, okay? People in Newfoundland will always help each other. We are good Newfoundlanders. Yes, I heard that part. And you know, Patty, it's hard times with a pandemic. Newfoundlanders don't always ask for handouts, but we are good Newfoundlanders. And I want people to know that it's not our fault that they got overwhelmed with a pandemic. Yeah, and it could have, it could be for a variety of reasons. Uh, that's right, Patty. We know what's happening, and that's where a lot of focus needs to be is on just how big the problem is becoming. Because before long, it becomes completely unmanageable. So I think those stories are are helpful personally, because yes. if people don't know what's happening, they don't see it with their own two eyes, then they might not realize exactly how bad it has become. So right. anyway, and I, I don't think this paints the province in a bad light, because no. as I mentioned, I think you could have that story run in all the territories and every province because the country is dealing with it. So I appreciate the call and I'm glad you're as kind as you are to help people and give them the shirt off your back. I will always help us Newfoundlanders, Patty, whether it's a pandemic or not. We are good people and God bless you, Patty. You're the best on the year, I swear to God. Well, I appreciate the kind words and thanks for the call. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, look, nobody wants to point out the darkest uh, corners of society. But if we don't, the dark corners just grow exponentially. Uh, let's go to line number two. Elizabeth, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Um, I wanted to talk about um, the opportunity I had the summer, actually, uh, from the 10th of September to the 15th. I took part in a pair of bowls national competition in Windsor, Ontario. A pair of bowls means that um, the blind and visually impaired and the physically disabled are in a competition together. Um, the physically disabled bowl against each other and the blind and visually impaired bowl against each other. Now this is the first pair of bowls competition that has been held in Canada uh, by Bowls Canada. How did you get involved? Canada.com, if anyone wants to uh, do the research there. How did you get involved, Elizabeth? Uh, well, I am visually impaired, mm-hmm. and I've been a lawn bowler. This is lawn bowling. I've been a lawn bowler for, uh, oh, quite a few years. Like, I went to Australia in a competition. I went to Worthing, England in a competition. And we had our own organization then just for the visually impaired, but we folded and... Uh, 
transferred our money to the Bowls Canada. Um, so now they're doing it. Uh, they're doing pair of bowls competitions, and they're going to do one next year in. Um, I don't know for sure, but maybe in Calgary, Alberta. That sounds like fun. Just help us understand how it works. Because if I go bowling, of course, as someone with uh, reasonably good vision, I can see the pins, I hear the surroundings, I know what's happening. Is there like an audio cue that comes from the head pin or something that you focus in on? How does it work? No, and actually lawn bowling is like curling. You have a jack, which is a little white ball, like something the size of a golf ball. Uh, you roll that, and um, then each each person has four bowls, and the person that gets closest to that white ball, which we call the jack, is the one that won that end. There's no sound, but the visually impaired have a coach. We, uh, the coach tells us, uh, you know, what direction to go and okay. that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the way we do it. So in order for me to get there, I was supported, uh, well, some some financial support from the Canadian Council of the Blind, that's CCB. And uh, this coming Saturday, the Canadian Council of the Blind, our local chapter in St. John's, is having a, a walkathon around Monday Pond. And uh, that's at 11.30, 11.30 to 12.30. And uh, we're doing that to raise money to help out with the the activities that our members take part in. So um, we we welcome anyone that wants to join or anyone that would like to sponsor us. And we have an an e-transfer account. Uh, with our with our bank and it's um, CCB E A Baker Club at gmail dot com. Okay, I just wrote that down. Just for the purpose of the listeners, we know, and I used to talk with, like, for instance, Don Connolly all the time, and Shane Cashin and others who are organizing these types of events, and some of their messaging always was trying to encourage more and more people who are visually impaired to get involved, because you might think, well, I can't do it, and I'm afraid to try, and I don't want to be embarrassed, and I don't know how to approach this. What was it like for you when you first decided, you know what, I'm going to go do this, I can do it. People have told me that it's fun, you make a few new friends, you get the coach involved, and what have you. What's your message to folks who maybe would love to deep in their mind but are afraid to well they can they can do it they have to just put that little effort ahead put their put an effort into it and and uh, just try it but they can do it and it's, it's going to be different because we've had some people curling with us who uh, who, who were sighted and 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 lost their vision and then we really had to get out and encourage them to to try it with us and and when they did they loved it no doubt they did give the folks the details one more time where and when is your next event the walkathon yes. is Saturday. Yep. Um, Eleven thirty at um, Round Monday Pond, and um, I gave the uh, I gave the the address. And if anyone anyone wants to contact me for information, they can call me at two two nine seven two zero five. Two two nine seven two zero five, and if you'd like to e-transfer a donation, you can do that at ccbeabaker at gmail dot com. Right? Ea Baker Club. Club. Oh, club! I didn't have club in there. All right. Ea Baker Club at gmail dot com. There we go. 
That's right. Thank you. Appreciate the time. Good luck with it. Thank you very much, You're Ed. welcome, Elizabeth. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, the mayor of Stephenville is Tom Rose. He's in the queue, and Bernice wants to talk about medical transportation, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four, say good morning to the mayor of Stephenville. That's Tom Rose. Good morning, Mayor Rose. You're on the air. Hey, Mr. Patty Daly. Good morning, sir. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So we know that the province has signed a declaration of intent with Germany for the provision or export of green hydrogen. And World Energy GH2 has signed an MOU with both the town and Halibut First Nation. What's the focus inside this MOU? Uh, the key focus, I guess, from the town of Stephenville is to look at the socioeconomic benefits for the region. And uh, I'm an indigenous may- a mayor, a member of Halibut, and uh, our town is registered under the Federal Indian Act as a recognized indigenous town within Canada. So we felt it was important. Uh, we had some great dialogue with Mr. John Rizzi and his team in World Energy and their partner companies on this massive mega-scale project for Newfoundland and Labrador with a focus in Stephen Bull and the region. So what we wanted to do is to ensure that we would be in support 100% by signing the MOU, but also that we would focus on the uh, socioeconomics of what this project could mean. And so we looked at uh, opportunities that we could receive funding grants, and they just announced this vibrancy fund, that we would look at the needs of the people, the environment, families, and and focus on uh, doing the right thing in uh, taking care of our community. The main way to maximize the economic benefit, socioeconomic benefit for the region is so that people is for people to be trained so they can be part of that workforce there. So I know there's no such institute focused on green hydrogen training, as no, not as far as I know, but I think there's a partnership struck with some academy in the Netherlands and the College of the North Atlantic so that we can have some course offerings here so that we can be, you know, boots on the ground, be part of it from the beginning, because that's the best way to maximize the, the economic upside. Uh, absolutely, you're right. And, you know, we have to start with the youth and education. And uh, at the end of the day, the countries that are highly educated are the countries that have the greatest economies, the greatest, uh, you know, GDP and so forth. So uh, I do know that our college, uh, actually, our president, Liz Kidd, was in Hamburg with us. And uh, DOB is a key partner, uh, which is a technical school in the Netherlands, in uh, Delft and uh they're looking at partnering with the college and Stephen Bowl. I think there's some negotiations onward, but that's going to be very beneficial and it's beneficial in two ways. It's, it's for somebody that may want to come out of school, right out of high school, uh, you know, cost of education. We're still not free, although in Newfoundland we're, we're in really good shape when it comes to educational costs, but uh, world energy has committed that anybody who's interested in taking training, uh, the training will be free if they commit to working over two or three years, and I'm not sure what the, the numeric timeline on that is, but I think it's two or three years. So here's an opportunity, but it's also an opportunity for somebody who might want to change careers or upskill from, let's say, a, uh, a retail job where you're making, let's say, minimum wage. So these are going to be good-paying jobs. Uh, and it's interesting, Patty, when I was in Hamburg, a gentleman came by who was an engineer that worked for Abitibi Price, and he said, you know, uh, Mayor Rose, he said, uh, over 20 years ago, I was instrumental in shipping the first newsprint roll out 
a Stephen Little Newfoundland to Hamburg, Germany, uh, and he worked with Abbott Tibby uh, Price at the time, a German engineer, and uh, and he said, now we're going to be shipping green hydrogen uh, to Hamburg. So it, it's a big a, a big economic deal, but socially, uh, you know, we're going to end up with better services, better roads, better employment, and and I'll always drill down to say that this is about family, you know. Uh, I'm lucky I have my two children that are working in Stephenville around ourselves, and we support them and their, ch- their children. But not everybody has that case. There's still 30,000 Newfoundlanders rotating in and out of this province, whether they're rotational workers or seasonal workers. So here's an opportunity for foreign direct investment. And we had a G7 summit deal signed in Newfoundland in Stephenville. It's a historical moment. This is really good for the province. And I wonder how you build on some of that momentum because it's not just about world energy in this case i mean there were business leaders for some of the biggest companies in europe right here in the province i don't know what kind of follow-up is planned whether it be by the province itself or mnl or you or john risley or what have you but when you've got mercedes-benz and uh volkswagen and thyssen krupp and all the siemens all here they came for a reason. It wasn't just about this one project. I wonder what the plan is for a real comprehensive follow-up because there's lots of opportunities, whether it be in the mining sector or hydrogen, which I'm not sure how it's going to work out, but fingers crossed it works out, and there's something in it for us, not only in your region but as a province. Do you know anything about the follow-up with these other companies? Because just imagine, they had one look here. We've got some big companies doing great things in the tech world, the innovation world. We've got the critical minerals. We're the only democracy on the face of the earth with all of the critical minerals to be involved with the electric vehicle battery chain, for instance. So do you know anything about what I'm getting at? Yeah, you know, we've we've been having some discussion and uh, on a couple of several factors. And you're right on target there with the tertiary industries and what could come out of this deal. Obviously, this is G7 world leaders, but within that agreement that was signed, embedded, it talked about exactly what you just spoke about, uh, to actually look at opportunities for other companies. So if you look at North America, it's only now we're catching up to the green, wind, hydrogen, energy. Uh, Amsterdam, Europe's been ahead of us by 20, 30 years. We only just lifted the wind restriction last year in our province. So maybe Siemens might look at Stephenville or the area and say, Maybe we might, uh, you know, move in, do this because there's going to be a big uptake in demand of this product or service. And it could be a Mercedes-Benz or a Volkswagen that's saying, well, our market is getting a little robust in North America and South America. Why don't we set up here in Newfoundland? We got ports, we got airports, we got great infrastructure. And that's the tertiary jobs that could bring 100, 300, 400, 500. And, you know, our province hasn't moved. And since we joined Confederation on population, why is that? It takes foreign direct investment. It takes maximizing. And and when you talked about uh, the batteries and the electric engines, well, there's cobalt and vanadium all around here. You know, maybe there's opportunities uh, that the mining uh, industry could be uh, value-added, that batteries could be produced here. Uh, They just announced Mm -hmm. Quebec. It could happen here. So, you know, I think you're right on. We're even starting to see it, Patty, just tertiary expatriate uh, Newfoundlanders moving back to Stephenville. I had a gentleman that left West Bay when he was 17 years old. He's 73 now. You got a company that supplies pro- uh, product and servicing to the wind farm technology in Ontario. He's now setting up in Stephenville. So that's what's happening because of this. And uh, 
you know, even the German tourism market. Well, right now they say there's 400,000 Germans that travel to Canada every year for business or tourism or whatever. What if we got 1% coming in to Stephenville through charters with Condor? You know, that's 4,000 people that we didn't have last year. Massive opportunities across the board, no doubt about it. And you mentioned Germany, it just pops in my mind because I'm so focusing on food and food inflation and what have you. It's bad enough in this country. It's almost 17% in Germany. I just wanted to throw that in there. I uh, appreciate the time this morning, Mayor Rose. Thanks a lot. Okay, thank you, sir. Have a great day. The very same to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, you know, look, there's plenty of fingers to point and questions to ask. In the G7, we have the third lowest food inflation behind France and Germany. Germany, almost 17%. Oh, my, my. And the worries they have ahead of them. And apparently I, I pronounce halibut wrong all the time. I, I try to make sure I've, I'm as close as I possibly can get. And I, I've admitted many times that I struggle with some of those words. So I'm being told, halibu, halibu. Is that a bit closer, Dean? Let me know. Will I take a break and come back for the good doctor? When we come back, we're going to talk about a conference coming up. It's a free virtual conference to talk about cancer care programs, uh, screenings, and what have you. We're going to speak with the professor of oncology and genetics at Memorial University. That's Dr. Sev Tapsavas. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the professor of oncology and genetics at Memorial University. That's Dr. Sev Tapsavas. Whoops, wrong button. Good morning, Dr. Savas. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Paddy, and everyone listening. Thanks for having me today. Uh, you're most welcome to join the program. Did I pronounce your name correctly? Absolutely perfect. Thank you so much. Terrific. And you say you're the one excited. I'm the one who's excited because I know you tune in every now and then. So we really appreciate that and your time this morning. Okay, let's go. Free virtual conference coming up on the 15th of October, focusing on what, doctor? Yes. So this is a um, this is a free event that we wanted to talk about cancer with everyone. So this idea came through our conversations with the cancer patients and family members in Newfoundland and Labrador, and we thought that you know everybody brings something different to the table. Very useful stories like patient size, uh, family member perspectives. Healthcare providers have uh, different knowledge and perspectives, and researchers like myself as well. And we said, you know, why don't we connect all these dots for the benefit of our community for our uh, province so um, we are going to have we are going to ha talk about cancer and there are three really great um, topics that we are focusing on cancer patient and family member perspectives these are real people real stories and I think we will relate in so many different ways it's uh, important to understand their side of the experience the other one is about cancer screening services available and offered to the um, residents of Newfoundland and Labrador. These are uh, medical uh, programs that are free, and if you are eligible, it can really help you detect uh, tumors in early stage and when they are small. And when that happens, uh, the treatment and cure chances are really high. And so we would like everyone to, you know, think about this so that they can take advantage of these programs to pro help protect their health. The other um, idea uh, topic is that, you know, cancer is such a common disease. Around 45% of Canadians uh, will be diagnosed with it. But unfortunately, in our province, this rate is a little bit higher. So uh, many people, including ourselves, family members, you know, neighbors, friends, colleagues, they end up being diagnosed with this disease. So when you are diagnosed, with this disease, there are specific programs, support programs, 
for example, social work, for example, nurse navigator program that helps you navigate the clinical system, which is very, you know, can be very overwhelming if you are a patient. So there are really awesome programs offered by the provincial cancer care program, and we have speakers to talk about this too. And the last part is, you know, how it is important to collaborate together, like public cancer patients, families, researchers, healthcare providers, and healthcare authorities all together for the benefit of our, of our uh, province. So, yeah. Well, now that I'm speaking with a researcher, and one of the focus areas is to talk about patient involvement with the researchers. How does that work, and how does that make things better? Oh, it makes everything so better. So I started doing this in the last couple of years as well, and some of our audience may remember we have the public uh, public interest group on cancer research. So patients are the experts of their lived experience. I cannot, as a researcher who is not a, a cancer patient, cannot know what they are going through, what they have gone through. Is that correct? Correct. Right? I can't do your job, Patty. You can't do my job, you know. And the same thing with the patient. <laughs> the same thing with the patients, right? They are the experts of their experiences. So when we want to do a research, when we want to do something to change or understand something, we need to include the experts. And cancer patients or other patients are experts of their uh, diseases and lived experiences. So we need to partner with them. We need to get their experts into you know, our research studies, when we formulate research questions, when we, you know, design studies, when we understand what the study results means, and when we uh, need to disseminate it to others. Because figure, I mean, let's face it, I'm a scientist, my terminology is quite scientific, but for patients and families, public members, you know, they, they are really great communicators. And as a professor in genetics, you know, we also have what people refer to as a unique gene pool here. And I spoke with one of your colleagues, Holly Echegary, some while back, and she yeah. was terrific. So as a genetic researcher, you know, I think it's somewhere of upwards of 10% of cancers can be caused by inherited genetic changes. What do people, what should people know about that? Because it doesn't mean you're automatically going to get cancer, but how should you factor that into your approach to screening? Right. So that's, that's really an important topic. So yes, up to maybe uh, 10, 15% of all cancer cases are um, because of the defective genes or, you know, altered genes in, 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 in our um, cells. Um, it is an important information uh, because these kind of mutations or genetic factors really increase your risk for certain diseases. For example, in the case of cancer, it can increase your risk of developing breast cancer, ovarian cancer, stomach cancer, colorectal cancer, and so on. So it pro and through learning our genetic features, and we can be informed about our risk, right? So is my risk higher than others? And if so, what can be done? So if anybody is interested in this information, being informed about their cancer risk, and then uh, what can be done to limit their risk, uh, it, it, it's a great area. I think it's very empowering as well, but again, it's an individual choice. In terms of screening, of course, if, if, there, if uh, there is an indication that your risk is high, then one of the options for you is to you know, manage it clinically. Right, so we can get, for example, sometimes screening like uh, mammography or colon colonoscopy, etc., to see whether there is any precancerous uh, or uh, small tumors in our body. Or sometimes some individuals can decide to remove those tissues that are at high risk of uh, developing tumors. So it's really personal, um, but it's really important. It's about you know patients' empowerment about what is my risk and what do I want to do about this. 
for some people it might be a little bit confusing I'm in my 50s I have a colonoscopy scheduled for January yeah. some of the goalposts have moved you know for instance mammography recommendation at the age of 40 or 50 colonoscopies when you clear 50 so people might indeed be a little bit confused unless they have a good relationship with their family doctor or they understand the hereditary related risks what should we know about the age with, with, with which we should say absolutely approach a doctor and say okay I'm 40 my aunt had breast cancer I need the mammography or my father had colon cancer and I'm now 50 years old I need a colonoscopy what should people understand to manage their own approach to screening right excellent so I think it should be as soon as possible okay as soon as possible because I mean <clears throat> the the I think the uh, point with the hereditary cancers is that you know the since there is a, a alteration in our genes or cells already it, it really increases our risk that means that we actually expect the age of onset to be earlier than for example someone who doesn't have a family history so don't wait because we do see for example for colon cancer now we do see an increase in the um, rate of colon cancer in young individuals around 4 to 50 uh, 5 10 years ago you know we would say it's mostly old you know senior individuals disease but it's not this, it's not the case anymore so things are changing so if there is anyone who with a, a family history of a cancer or another disease it could be heart disease as well right so we i would suggest and this is what i do as a person like i i i, I inform my uh, family physician thankfully my fa my family physician really listens to me and really manages it and and then follow their guidelines and they also guide you know follow the guidelines either national or international guidelines but i think it's really important to bring this conversation to their attention time to time Right, things change, guidelines change. Uh, at one point, like today, my risk may be low. Like, for example, I have uh, high cholesterol, right? So right now, depending on my age, etc., I am low risk. But next year, it may change because my age will be, uh, become a factor. So as soon as possible and frequently, frequently, please bring it to your family doctor's attention. And I, I'm pretty sure they will follow the guidelines. And hopefully, you will get a really good uh, care, uh, specialized care. Dr. Savas, for people who would like to participate in this free virtual conference, what do they need to do? Exactly. Thank you for this. So there are a couple of ways. Of course, individuals can Google it. Uh, the other best way is actually to email me uh, or phone me. So I'm going to give this information here. My email is uh, sav, as in Victor, as at man.ca. S A V A S at Manda C A. And my yeah. And my phone number is eight six four six five zero seven. I'll repeat it. Eight six four six five zero seven. Please contact me if you can't find it on Google. I'll I'll direct you to the registration page. Registration is required. It's free, but it's required. Thank you for this conference. Thank you for your time, and I appreciate speaking with you this morning, Doctor. Thank you, Patty. This is my first time speaking to you, and I'm so delighted. Thank you very much. Absolutely my pleasure. Talk again Bye. soon. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. It's Dr. Sevtap Savas. She's a professor of oncology and genetics at Memorial University. One more before the news. Let's go to line three. Bernice, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. How are you doing today? Doing okay. How are you doing, Bernice? Um, oh, I'm a bit frustrated. Um, one time, uh, social services used to help with medical transportation. Okay. But now they've got it all uh, screwed up, so like you can't really get help from nowhere.
they, my, uh, I'm in Marystown. For me to get a taxi to Bjorn Hospital to have testing done, it's $25 up and $25 back. It's not cheap. Uh, I started calling last Thursday for to see if I could get any help from social services. And I left car back, car back, and car back. And lo and behold, yesterday when I was grocery shopping, uh, the worker called me, and I couldn't talk to him because I was in a line getting my groceries checked out. So he, t- oh, I told him I couldn't do it right there and then. He told me to call back this morning. So when I called him back this morning, he told me for me to get any help with the transportation, it's I had to have eight appointments per month. Like, uh, eight appointments is a lot. It is a lot. Why, has that changed recently or something, Bernice? Uh, see, I wasn't on social services since a long time. Okay. So, like, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but, like, I got four appointments uh, this week. Like, that's $200. I can't afford that. You know, and it seems like they can't help me because it's not eight appointments. Yeah, strange. Um, I, I don't know if that's always been the case or what have you. It seems like an awful frequent uh, run to the doctor to get any coverage, period. You know, because, like, uh, this morning now I got to go for uh, a CT scan mm-hmm. on my lungs. I got to have extra blood work done. They have to find things that I didn't know I had. And this is more depressing now, knowing that there's no help there. And you have zero options beyond having to get a, a taxi cab? Well, I don't have a vehicle. Uh, I don't have any friends. I live alone. So, you know, what do you supposed to do? Cancel the appointment? No, hopefully not. And like just what I thought that welfare was there, I thought they were there to help people. But boy, it does not help. I don't think that's what the welfare was supposed to be all about. No, well, there's certainly some gaps in the way social assistance is set up. Uh, transportation costs have long been a concern. I wouldn't know where to point you for an alternative beyond trying to get the cab as, as opposed to, you know, a, a community busing system or too bad you don't have someone in your world who can help you out every now and then with a spin. But, yeah. But we, ha- we haven't got a community busing system. Yeah, but which is something that we try to talk about every now and then is people think public transportation can only ever be applied in the urban areas like where I live as opposed to just like 15-person per- 15 vans and what they could be like and how they could be funded and how they could help. So, yeah, I understand your plight, Bernice. I wish I could help you out right now. Well, see, last week, the week before last week, I had an appointment in St. John's. And I uh, had to go through a lot trying to get um, a requisition to go from Marystown to St. John's because they thought I was bypassing going to the hospital in Bjorn. 
And it was because I had to see a lung specialist in St. John's. And the worker that I was talking to, he said, you could go. He said, to Bjorn, he said, and, and see uh, the doctor. And I said, boy, the doctor, uh, I got to go and see. It's referred from the doctor out here. You know, and it took me two days to try to, stra- try to get that straightened up. We understand your concerns, Bernice. I wish I could do something to flip a switch to get a bit more coverage and uh, support for you, but I appreciate your time. I hope you're doing okay. Thank you. You're welcome. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. It is time for the news. When we come back, Don's in the queue patiently. He's going to talk about the new announcement yesterday about the one-time cost of living check that... Some 392,000 Newfoundlanders and Labradorians will receive before Christmas. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two, Don, you're on the air. How are you doing today, sir? Okay, Don, you? I'm still here. <laughs> now, i just got to refer back to uh, three callers ago. Tom Rose, the mayor of Steve Mill. Mm-hmm. Once this announcement was made about all these windmills and everything coming here, he forgot to say that the rents are double here in this town. Mine just went up a hundred bucks. So, what would you like the mayor to say to rental costs? Well, I would like the mayor to say, listen, uh, even though we have advancements in, in windmills and hydrogen or whatever, but the poor people in Newfoundland Labrador. Now, our rent's gone up because they want the workers to come here and pay $700, $800 a month. You're on social service. You can't do that. I don't really think it's an issue that mayors can deal with very adequately. Well, no, I know. See, here's where I get the point. The point is right. they made an announcement. Then all of a sudden, uh, the rich people, they say, oh, we got an advantage here now. We're going to drive up the rents here. And my rent went up $100, sir. Okay. Okay. That's all you says. Okay. Well, I don't now, know what you want me to say to that. The project hasn't started yet, so a rent increase today with a project that hasn't put a shovel in the ground, I don't know what the relationship is between the two. I also don't know when we talk about folks on social assistance and their inability to keep up with the skyrocketing prices of everything you touch, your home heating fuel, your gasoline, your food, your rent, your insurance, your bills. So, again, some of these things are possibly inside the municipal envelope, right, but most of them that's aren't. Not, most of them are are either provincial or federal related matters that you could get some help if you were looking for help but social assistance right. needs social assistance needs to be reinvented anyway it's not Number working one. the way thank you what thank you for saying that okay. thank you no problem appreciate that now this is five hundred dollar okay i want to get on this one now to buy that by 365 days how much does it keep a person per day you got a calculator Okay, and, and the point of this particular question is to get at what? Well, I'm going to give $500 if, I'm, if it's applicable to me. But to buy $500 in the 365 days. Yeah, it's, I went down about a bag of potatoes yesterday, $9.99. Yeah, it's about $1.40 or something maybe. Right. That's how I come up with $1.40. 
but it's not intended to be something that you know i don't know how people are going to spend their 500 dollars. how could i possibly know how everyone's going to deal with it you know one of my uh, colleagues here at work says he's going right to his bills i've had a couple of emails saying the first thing they're doing is getting 500 dollars worth of furnace oil so of course it's not going to be spent in daily increments i don't imagine people are going to do that they're going to go to the bank and get a uh, no. big roll of loonies and toonies and spend it day by day but uh, again it's a one-time that. cost of living benefit to try to help people and you know i don't think there's there's questions about timing well it's the first day that the fall sitting resumed and the check will be out close to christmas i would suggest where a lot of people have some additional expenses so yeah it might go to christmas gifts and beer i don't know it depends no, here's where it should go. Here's where it should go. You got a good job, and I believe your wife is a teacher, right? Yeah. Do you need that five hundred dollars if you make a hundred thousand dollars a year? Well, you know, that's a fair question. For folks who make a hundred thousand dollars, the here's how many people behave: is you spend what you get. And so, for I put it this way, I know a ton of people who make a pretty good buck, and they right. so carefully watch what the Bank of Canada is doing with the interest rates because the more you make, the more you spend. The more you make, the bigger things you have, like the car and the home and the toys and the cabin and the quad and the skidoo. And so, believe it or not, there are some people out there who are also quite worried who make a hundred thousand dollars does that mean they deserve 500 from the government that's up for anyone uh, anyone's personal opinion well here's the way i feel about it okay look i'm sitting here with my leg cut off i've got an electric wheelchair everybody wants to go green and i can't even get a, a rebate on my electric bill i wish i could find a gas power wheelchair it'd be more expensive i wouldn't care because I can go further on the gas power than I can on the electric. Okay. And that I know. So what I'm asking is, why do they come up with this $100,000 limit? Come on, you got $100,000. Why do you need 500 When the poor people here in Newfoundland and Labrador, the rent just went up because of the Nile spent. I just don't understand the concept. You're not alone. You could explain to me. Explain to me. Well, I didn't. It's not my pocket pot of money, right? I didn't even know it was coming, so it's not really for me to explain it. Like I just said, there are some people out there earning a good buck whose bills are as high as their salary is high, and so when things go up, like the interest rate sure, and their loans, uh, yeah, I thought you, you wanted me to yacht. explain it. Okay. Sure. If you got a yacht and you're, you're spending more on fuel than me, I'm just trying to eat my oats and and not starve to death here. I'm under sixteen thousand dollars a year. Now we're talking a hundred thousand. That's quite a difference. It is. So that's all I'm saying. Appreciate the time, Don. Take care of yourself. Thank you. All the best. Bye bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you on what? And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Mike, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Patty, I'd like to go back a few years to the day of the conception of the Muskrat Falls deal. At that time, my argument was going from AC to DC and DC back to AC with inverters, converters, and all this stuff that I said it was a pipe dream by the engineers with hydro. I can go back to the days of Randy Sims and Bill Roll onto this, and one time my, uh, Ed Martin was on there and I asked him this question. He was on the open line show. I said, why go with DC? I said, they're just going with the AC. And he said, oh, two wires are cheaper than three. But that's not true because 
with this type of AC to DC, you've got to have a communication cable. That communication cable more than likely is much more expensive than just a single conductor cable. So my thing now is why don't they forget the, the AC to DC, just go with AC, take off the communication cables on top of the poles, get an insulator, and run a single wire that they can have three-phase power. The only problem is I don't know what they got across the streets. But to me, you know, to make something out of a bad deal, this to me is uh, seems like the simplest solution. The issue so there, the issue that engineers speak to there, Mike, is the amount of energy loss. Uh, I could never ever find out how much that energy loss. This is done around the world before. Uh, I've never ever. But it's also done around the world. ACDC and that type of conversion is also done in other places. The problem that, as it's been explained to me, was that the software that they chose was untested, as opposed to what we already know has worked in other operations, including Hydro Quebec. But we didn't choose to go with something that was already understood and tested and proved to be reliable. We went with another software that is all glitched up. No, uh, from what I can gather, when they don't. What do you mean, no? When when this. This project here came into being. They were depending on other companies around the world to get involved into it, to develop the software, to develop the system. This was all new. And uh, it's basically blown up. But when they put in this thing uh, originally, the, uh, the things for, for make this work properly were not even developed. The, pro- they, they were the, the provinces, well, hold on. The provinces consumer advocate said on this program yesterday that in his conversations with his counterparts in other provinces, including in Quebec, Hydro-Quebec has a piece of software that's been running for about eight years uh, that was not even considered by Nalcor. So I can only go with what he knows, and he's you know actively working in the industry. Yeah, but that could be uh, true. I don't doubt what he's saying, but what I'm saying is that the software and everything for this project was not developed at the time of its conception. Yes, there's a used around the world that and everything else, but to me there now to make a make something out of a bad deal, what I could never figure out what I asked engineers and different people is that he says that it's not as efficient. But you know, what are the losses versus AC to DC? I can't find out because if you go to certain situations, certain distances, AC is better than the DC, and in some cases, DC is better than the AC, but it depends on the different distances and the changes. So, uh, therefore, uh, you'd have to go through engineers and that and whatever to figure out the distance of how much it is, and is it worth the cost for all of this technology and equipment to go in there? What I'm saying now is that, look, We've got something there that's not going to work. An easy solution is run the third cable for three-phase power from Muskrat Falls. They can probably go into Cat Arm because Cat Arm got heavy cables there due to the terrain, and they're oversized because the mechanical means of stringing it, uh, the, the way to warrant it. So we have other solutions there that could uh, take place. Uh, the only problem that I see there is, like I said, I don't know if they got a uh, redundant cable across the streets. If they never ran a, an extra cable in case of the fault, as far as I'm concerned, it was a bit undersized. But uh, to me, like like I said, there's something as far as I'm concerned that should be considered. I know that 
everything that I'm saying is not that easy. There are going to be complications and that and everything else, but what I'm saying is that I think it's a solution to uh, get rid of this stuff, not to have it reliable. I've seen these things blow up. I've installed them and uh, repaired them and everything, not on the scale of the hydro one, but... Volts yeah, well, engineers tell me, and I, I, I don't pretend to be an engineer because I'm obviously not. And here's a couple that are chiming in as we speak today. Uh, and this guy is working in the industry actively as an engineer. He says above 600 kilometers, HVDC is more economic. Next guy chimes in and says any electrician or electrical engineer knows there's no way to officially transport AC power over the distances that Muskrat Falls is dealing with because, it, it, like, it's 1100, uh, it's 1100 kilometers of transmission line. So at over 600 of HVDC is more economic then I don't know if your solution makes economic sense at this point although we've run up against it with this GE software obviously and if there's any solution available to fix it I don't know or do we start from scratch with another provider to implement their software that maybe has more testing and reliability attached to it so that's what I know about it well why did they ever plan on whatever well, because you can't do anything about the distance. Muskrat Falls is always going to be as far from St. John's as, as it is, regardless of the approach taken. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, like I said, I don't have all the answers, but uh, I think uh, I, I think that three-phase power would work. And if there's losses in that and stuff, it depends on the size of the cables and that, whatever, and the amperage for the losses. Uh, I think, I don't know, I think there needs a, a lot of second looks by the engineering departments and that whatever but i don't know like i said before i said with, with conception this was a harebrained idea by a bunch of engineers that wanted to make a name for themselves well they got a name for themselves now but you know what a cost it is to us and uh, like you said i know the problems and the troubles and everything with this with this stuff and uh, what but i would like for an engineer to come out and tell me of what are the losses? How much? How much is lost on the distances, the different distances, and how much is gained? I know. I know it's it's on the internet. There, it's a long time ago now since I dwelled into it. But I know there are certain distances that it changes, and in some cases, the longer it goes, the AC is better than the DC. Appreciate but, the time, Mike. Yeah, to go through it all now, like I said, it's a big engineering feat, and we need some good, capable people there now to figure out and come up with the solutions for it. But to me, as far as I'm concerned, I do believe that you can put transformers in there to cover the losses on the way, and you can build up the voltage, uh, step it up along the way with other transformers and substations. But I don't know. Right now, we, we've got parts there now that are going to be going to be sending on one company. If you went with just substations and that whatever tree phase power, you're not being held to held ransom for by one company because all this equipment made by a hundred companies around the world. So we got competition. But what I'm saying is that Yes, I heard what you're saying, Mike. Yeah. 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 Remove the communication cable put in insulators, and run the third wire. It, when you say it sound, make it sound just so absolutely fundamentally simple, doesn't that also speak to the fact that it probably isn't that simple? Oh, I know it's not that simple. There's going to be complications, yes, and like the straights, if they don't have the third wire across the straights. But 
Yes, fundamentally, it's, it's uh, you know, like, you, you can never do a project like this and have ditches and that and stuff. And like you said, there's other substations that might have to be designed in between to carry these losses to build up okay. the building. You know, there, there is, and okay. I don't know, but I've worked on these systems, I've installed it and that and whatever. And, you know, I don't have all the answers, don't pretend that I have all the answers, but... You know, I've talked to engineers. I got different stories onto it, so I don't know what to believe and what not to believe. To be honest with you. Appreciate the time, Mike. Thank you, sir. Take care. Bye. Right, bye bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about this one-time cost of living benefit announced by the provincial government yesterday with Labor advocate Elise Stewart. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Uh, good morning, Elise Stewart. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So we talk about money in people's pockets as, you know, some people say it's the solution to all ills, you know, whether it be food insecurity or cost of living mitigation measures. But there seems to be some controversy surrounding this particular announcement. Some people applauding it, you know, because some people that $500 will be a godsend. Others worried about the threshold being set at $100,000. How could someone making that money possibly need the $500? What was your initial reaction? Yeah, I mean, I think my my initial reaction when watching the press conference, because, you know, it kind of, we had the announcement in the morning and then it happened really quickly. So I was really interested to see what they were going to do because there's been so much talk about cost of living and inflation and all these things. So, you know, I think like most lo- most folks, I was certainly hoping for more of a long-term plan. Um, the $500 in people's pockets, you know, at, at face value, Yes, that's a good thing. You want people to be able to have some spending revenue. You want to alleviate the stressors that a lot, you know, a lot of folks are feeling, especially lower-income folks. Which that five hundred dollars, you're right, it can be a godsend. Um, and the fact that it's going to be kind of carte blanche, right? It's going to be in people's hands. You don't have to apply for it. There's no lengthy uh, application process. Those are good things. That makes you know, there's no barriers. However. That kind of is where the list stops because, you know, this is kind of putting a Band-Aid on a solution that it needs a lot more than a Band-Aid, right? We need these large structural issues that we're facing. Uh, inflation has decreased a little bit, but, you know, it seems like it hasn't decreased very much. And there's that looming fear of, an, of a recession in the wake of the pandemic. Um, cost of living has just skyrocketed. So the $500 you know now is good but there just needs to be so much more and and i was hoping that it would come with an announcement we have 500 dollars today and tomorrow we have a long-term strategy to deal with these huge uh barriers that people are facing economically but uh, that wasn't the case yeah i mean complex uh, issues require complex solutions unfortunately the easy part is to give people more money but as you rightfully point out and as i tried to say off the top of the program this really needs to have in conjunction with a one-time announcement some sort of plan but that's where the real tough gets going here because governmental involvement or injection into some of the prices that we're suffering through i'm not so sure how that works i know it's easy enough to say long-term play but let's even if we talk about the price of food food inflation in the country is about 10.8 percent that's a whopping big number you know some of the monetary policy levers that can be pulled aren't necessarily provincial so when you talk about the long-term solution because i agree with you 100 percent, i'm just not really really sure how that works and where you start 
Yeah, I think the I think the main place that you start, and Patty, we've talked about this, you know, for years now. I feel like um, is instituting living wage. So we have the minimum wage review committee. You have a basic income committee. You have a pay equity committee. Of all these committees that are doing things, when what really needs to happen is you you know the government can legislate a living wage. It can increase the minimum wage towards a living wage, tied to inflation. You know, all of you know that's that's a huge lever that they can pull. And now, uh, and in terms of the cost of groceries and food prices, you know that 10.8 percent is is criminal. These these large corporations like the Weston family and like, you know, Dominion, they're making skyrocketing profits that they've never made before. You know, on the backs of real consumers that are having to bear the burden of those those inflationary costs. So that's another you know I think per, federal provincial kind of conjunction needs to happen to hold. Uh, these large monopolies accountable to their consumers and to the people of you know this nation and this province because it should be illegal to inflate the price of milk to inflate the price of bread all these necessities when we, when we know that they're they are skyrocketing profits yeah um, milk is milk is a standalone though isn't it because we've got a supply management mechanism that's in play that is really confusing uh, we've seen two bumps in the price of milk this year one at six cents one at two cents per liter mm-hmm. so that has has happened but when that unless we blow up supply management i'm not sure so sure what we can do about the price of milk but i wonder what we will find out when parliament has an inquiry into the major mm-hmm. grocery chains about the profits because yeah. revenue does not mean profit and sometimes people conflate the two and think that well they've made more this quarter than year over year than last but does that mean they've made more profit I'm not so sure we're going to find that out because all of their inputs have gone up just like mine and just like this business. So I get the concept. And if we can identify where there is unnecessary increases in prices because corporations think that they can fall behind the political cover of inflation. Yes, we can talk about that. Is it as widespread or rampant in the grocery store aisles that some people say? I'm not really so sure it is, but I'd like to find out. I think this is a good idea. But then begs the question. What constitutes legitimate, acceptable levels of profit? Who gets to be the arbiter of what it constitutes a legitimate profit? You know, we can talk windfall all we like on one-time non-renewables, but the grocery stores, it's just a different beast. And I think the food inflation is probably the biggest pressure people are feeling. Oh, for sure. And I think when you certainly if you go to, I would say, any break room right now, any coffee table, any kitchen table, uh, it kind of goes pandemic weather cost of food, right? It's like those are the three big things that happen uh, because that's what people are most acutely having to deal with. And, you know, personally, it's like, I, you know, you have that moment where you go to the grocery store and you take the bag and you're like, this is it for the amount that I just spent? Um, And, you know, that's for folks that are on low income to get back to like the $500. People that are on low income or even $15 an hour they're making, you know, $15 an hour, they get you about just over $27,000 a year. So the pressure that they face carrying that bag of groceries is a lot heavier than somebody that's making a hundred thousand dollars so this you know the threshold of zero to a hundred thousand dollars I think that's also jarring a lot of people because those are such different lived realities in this province you're making a hundred thousand dollars or if you're making twenty seven thousand dollars yeah and nobody likes the comment I made on it and I I know it's real because I see it happening all the time it doesn't I'm not trying to say that someone earning a hundred thousand dollars should get anything from the government what mm-hmm. the point i make is that people spend what they make you know yeah. the, the, the days i've gone
on where people really make a mindful conscientious decision to uh, fund their retirement I know some people do of course they do but it, not the way it once was and gone are the big packages of pension because you worked 45 years for the same company these things have changed uh, dramatically so if I make a hundred I spend it. I spend a lot of it. And on top of that, my consumer debt load is huge. So now we have the perfect storm. Interest rate goes up. If I'm a $100,000 earner, of course, I have a different level uh, and standard of car and home and toy and travel and stuff. And my bills are huge. And my line of credit, believe it or not, at 100 grand, people have huge lines of credit and credit card debt. So they might need the 500 bucks, but no one likes the sound of it because, yes, the math is quite easy to do. If I have a family of four and three of us earn less than hundred thousand dollars and we bring in fifteen hundred and the single mom with three kids gets five hundred bucks so there's something the balance hasn't been struck here so i i think this would be a different conversation if it was all based on net family income versus individual earnings yeah i think so too and you know that's certainly true as well as that a lot of you know a lot of again like coworkers, friends all these people have very different rates uh, of what they're earning everybody is still feeling it right there's still that this visceral response to, wow, uh, my dollar just isn't going as far as it did yesterday or a month ago or two months ago. You know, so that that has to be addressed. And again, $500 is it's something. I think getting back to probably what we both said in the beginning, Patty, is that like this is a good plus what, right? $500 now is good plus what is the long-term solution or what is your, you know, are you looking at it? Do you have any plans? Have you brought on folks to talk about how other provinces are dealing with cost of living? This has been something that is kind of happening, you know, other provinces have done it where they do the one-time cash payment. Uh, but, you know, there has to be something more robust. There has to be a bigger conversation that happens. I see that the Pay Equity Committee is they're finally going to meet again, which is great. It's been a while. Um, and, I, you know, I hope that they have something that comes out of this to see, like, this is a complex problem. And a, a one-time cash payment is not going to solve anything. Uh, it is going to alleviate some pressures for sure, but the pressures won't go away. The cost of living is not set to decrease anytime soon. So how do we create those structures and those programs that are going to make sure those that need it the most have what they need if anybody thinks they've got the ultimate solution to these problems they should really step forward and now is the time saskatchewan did something very similar to what this province has just done even with the federal government you know to try to get some money in people's pockets the first criticism was you're just aiding to the inflationary pressure so if anybody has a solution that can be implemented that makes more sense than what anyone else has come up with we need to hear those things and i don't care what party or what politician comes up with it because i think like most things in this world it's extremely complicated there are a bunch of different inputs that need to be considered and so the perfect policy is going to be remain as elusive as the unicorn but can we do better maybe but let's talk about how we can do it because that's in all our best interest and i don't care if people think this is vote buying or what have you because you know people want help now they get help but of course political ideology is overtaking pragmatism so that's where we find ourselves i'll give you last word at least well, no, I think that that's, that certainly is that there isn't one policy, Patty. It's like we, we have to look at this suite of things that can be responsive to the needs of the people sure. of the province. Time. Uh, and there isn't, there's not a silver bullet. We, you know, we know that. I wish, you know, a lot of times I wish that there was. Um, but looking at different models and different funding programs and different ways that we can make sure that money gets into people's hands when they need it is certainly a step. And of course, a living wage, right? That is something that can tomorrow help a vast majority of people in this province that are struggling to, you know, make it to next month. So I hope that that's on everybody's radar for the next election. Appreciate the time this morning, Elise. 
Oh, thanks so much, Patty. Bye. Bye-bye. Salise Stewart, she's a labor advocate. Uh, before we get to the break, just want to give a shout-out that I meant to do off the top of the show to Mallory Harris. What a career she's had. So she's uh, recorded a sniper 32nd at the Jubilee Nationals. She's the competition's top scorer since the turn of the century. Mallory Harris, how about that? Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, quick reaction to Elise Stewart on two. Gail, you're on the air. Hi there, Patty. How are you? No, not too bad, thanks. You? Um, there's a, uh, $500. Uh, we went, a friend of mine was uh, in last night, and we actually went in to look at what exactly that means. That is not individual when it comes to uh, the income tax, when they go back to the income tax. Uh, it's based on uh, a household income of a husband and wife. So a husband no. and wife will get the 500 No, no. And... Yeah, uh, if you look up that what the word they said, uh, apparently or uh, whatever that word is in the thing, it's it's online two twenty three two hundred thirty thousand six hundred. That's the line you got to look at, and that line says is is where you put in your spouse's income. Yeah, but that, this is not a CRA issue. This is a provincial government policy. It's every adult who filed a 2021 tax return with income less than $100,000 gets $500, up to $125,000 on the sliding scale, two fifty. They actually quote the number of residents to get this benefit, one-time check, to be 392,000 Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. So it's absolutely for individuals, every adult, 18 plus. Okay, but yet when they say they're going by the uh, CRA, uh, when you file your income tax, mm -hmm. and they they use that one one word they use there, and you look that word up, it's going by that line, which is two hundred and thirty thousand six six hundred, which is the line where you put in your spouse's income. Yeah, but you're only they're only referring to your net income on that line in your tax return. Because I know when I file taxes, I know I have to include my wife's income for purposes of tax. But this is an adult, individual, every adult. Because just think about it out loud. If it was all based on net family income, we wouldn't have the number 392,000. Because there's yeah. nowhere near that uh, number of homes, for instance, in the province. So that's basically how it works, as far as I understand. And if I'm wrong, I can be set straight. That's no problem. Okay, so we need to find out that first. So, yeah. Uh, because, I mean, then you're looking at kids who are living at home. Yep. Getting $500. Yep. 18 and over. And uh, they don't give that to their parents. Yet the parents are the ones that are feeding them and, and putting the roof over their head. Yeah, I mean, for people who, quote-unquote, don't need it, they can decide to do something inside their community with it if they're so inclined. You know, and I hear people already say, well, my family doesn't need it. There was one such example offered by a listener said, uh, family of four here, two adult children living at home, we're going to bring in $2,000, and we don't really need $2,000 the way other people do. Well, you, people can choose to do something altruistic with the money. It doesn't all have to go in your oil tank. It doesn't all have to go on Christmas presents. So, I mean, people will spend it based on their own needs needs or wants or desires, I suppose. Okay, that's good. But I'd like to find out for sure if it is based on uh, that line and if it's really going to be 500 each or if it's going to be as a total of income of 100000 or not. We're told every single adult who filed a 2021 tax return. So that that's how I've read it. I think that's how most everyone else has read it. But we can get that clarification uh, to put your mind at ease. Gail, that's no problem. All right, then. Thanks a lot. Appreciate your time. 
okay. taken okay. care of it by. Because I think if it was the other way, it would have been quite clearly uh, discussed as net family income, which has been the threshold applied for many other programs, uh, federally and provincially. Let's go to line number 10. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Cornerbrook. He's the Minister of Immigration, Population, Growth and Skills. That's Jerry Byrne. Minister Byrne, you're on the air. Thank you so much for having me on, Patty. So I know where the first question will be, who was right in that particular conversation, and I can say that your your analysis, your uh, interpretation is the correct analysis. I thought so, because when you say every adult who filed taxes and you use a number like 392,000, it can only be one way, really. But I understand and appreciate Gail's question. We're glad we could yeah, clarify it. Indeed. So, you know, one of the questions here was was one of equity. If you, you know, a spouse is not an appendage of their other spouse, it's, if you have a tax filer, there is a an opportunity there for uh, in a two-spousal family uh, household everyone both spouses get the check if they meet the eligibility criteria and that's an equity issue too as well so it's uh, listen the only people who will not need this check or will have some value for this check are those who do not buy groceries who do not eat who do not have to eat their homes who do not have to spend their money on energy um, this is there is only one thing that allows you to be able to get food to eat to heat your homes and it's money so this is money to be able to offset on a temporary basis the the immediate effects of of, of an inflationary pressure so listen we knew I knew I think everybody knew that whenever you announce something like this there will always be various opinions various points of view that say this is where the money could be spent well what we heard is the middle class where we see you we are listening to you we understand that you are suffering as well you have uh, issues of uh, resulting from inflation so we're going to act on that we see you middle class Okay, help us understand the conversation surrounding individuals and 100,000, 125 versus what's suggested in some corners as net family income because then you have a better understanding of the bills that pile up. Like a couple of my boys live at home, they're going to get a check. And I can't speak for them, but I know pretty well their needs. They don't really need it. So why did we not go with the net family business? Because then you really could have had a much more targeted approach because people paint the picture. The, some families bringing in 1,500, a single mom with three children getting 500. So wh- how was that approached? I'm not aware of anyone who could not use this money usefully and successfully to be able to offset the, uh, the cost of inflation. Um, if the end result was that it still basically was within the same amount of money that uh, it circulated within, you know, within the same, within a family household. But let's, let's be very clear. I think you touched on this. You know, if a middle-income family, say, for example, two, uh, uh, two spousal household, um, both of whom just hypothetically are teachers, um, there are expenses that occur there from each spouse and that they contribute to the, to the cost of the house. And so the whole notion of putting it towards a household income does not reflect the reality that every individual is a tax filer. Every individual has responsibilities to contribute to uh, where this money came from. And so there is a there is a dividend that was paid out or, a, or a, a benefit that was paid out to offset the cost of inflation. And it was a very simple, very straightforward, very administratively efficient way to do that. Uh, Patty, there are many, many ways 
that this kind of initiative can be done. This was one that was chosen because it did provide equity to all tax filers who are facing low and middle income situations. And it did reflect the fact that there's that because one spouse may be higher than another, that the other spouse should be uh, should should not be able to benefit from that. Those, that's the kind of consideration that was in play here. And those who say that, well, equity should not have been a consideration. I respect that point of view. Again, like everything, there's a complicated approach here, you know, but I do think that what I said is fairly on point and what I at least chimed in on is this is just the beginning because one-time relief doesn't deal with a long-term solution. That is absolutely required. You listen to anybody. I know if you put 10 economists in the room, you get 10 different opinions, but this is going to be long-term impact of these cost of living spikes. And even if inflation comes down to a more manageable, neutral number, say around 3% or what have you, we're still not going to be through through. The, the worst of it will still be in the throes of it. So the next step, I would hope, from the provincial government is a better understanding of what it means long term, because this is going to be good for people who need it now. But come January, when the clock switches and the calendar page flips, we'll kind of be back to square one. We couldn't agree more. You know, the inflationary pressures that we have today were not in sight uh, literally a year ago. So, you know, you have to adjust to the moment. You have to be prepared to take short-term, medium-term, and long-term solutions based on what you know to be true. We are still in a situation where all things are on the table. As I said to you before, and I, and I don't take that back, you, you kind of challenged me one time when I said, listen, everything is on the table. We will, there is no ideology in play with our government. There is a practical, realistic approach that we're taking. Um, you can't avoid, and you should not avoid, or we, you know, we can't ignore, that is a better way to put it, the fact that we just adjusted the minimum wage. Um, we're adjusting things in the long term to say that there is no long-term strategy that's under play, that's simply short-term measures at this point in time, would not be justified. Can there be more? We're always gauging what needs to be done and what we're showing with over a over a half a billion dollars in initiatives announced so far, we are definitely not tone deaf to the pain and and and, and concerns of uh, low income people and families and middle income uh, people and families. Fair. We see you. Fair. We see you. There's been you no know, the ten percent increase for those receiving seniors benefit. Ten percent increase for those on income support programs. That's catching some but not most, nowhere near most. And that's the point, and I, I think you understand and yeah. will accept that point. I do. Uh, I do. Very quickly, two quick questions before we talk whatever about whatever you called about. So they said it's a tax-free benefit, but of course, what about the federal government component of my tax return and the money I owe the federal government? Has there been a relationship struck between the government of Canada and the province to make it a full-on tax-free benefit? That's uh, listen. I'm not in a position to be able to answer that. That's uh, the Minister of Finance, who's available today, would be more than qualified to be able to speak exactly to the arrangements that have made federally and provincially within our harmonized income tax system and collection system. So I I, I will have to defer on that one. That's for okay. So I won't ask you about having reported on employment insurance either. <laughs> okay, I'll save that for her, uh, for Minister Cody. Uh, because of the time on the clock, I'm sure you wanted to talk about immigration. I did talk about numbers, the net gain in uh, the second quarter of this year. It's in 
interesting, you know, whether it be people moving from inside the country and people coming to the country and consequently landing in this province. If you can uh, bear being on hold through the news, we can come back and have that chat. God love you. Thanks. Appreciate it. Let's do that. Uh, the minister is on hold. Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we will indeed talk about immigration with Minister Jerry Byrne. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels, newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Uh, welcome back to the show. Let's rejoin the Minister of Immigration, Population and Growth, Population, Growth and Skills on 10. Minister Byrne, you're back on the air. Minister Byrne, is he potted up there, Dave? Okay, there we go. Now you're back. God love you. Thanks so much. I really appreciate you coming back on. Just to give a a quick update on on some of the population numbers that have been released by Statistics Canada uh, in their analysis of Newfoundland and Labrador and across the country. Uh, The most recent quarterly report, which was issued just a few short days ago, indicates that the population of Newfoundland and Labrador has grown by an additional 3,000 people within the last three months. That's um, factoring in the fact that... uh, the, from a local or domestic population point of view, we had 4,000 more people pass away in that same period of time than we had babies born, but yet we still had 3,400 more people enter the province choosing Newfoundland and Labrador as their preferred place to live, and our population grew as a result of a, a net of 3,000 more people. And Patty, hats off to this is an accomplishment of the province this is everybody in the province who deserves the pat on the back for this who put their back to welcoming newcomers encouraging the government to follow this policy of population growth through immigration through encouraging uh, expat newfoundlanders and and other canadians to come here with their uh, remote working campaign this is everybody who donated to the Association for New Canadians and are participating in the welcoming of new people to our province. This is not a celebration of government. This is a celebration of Newfoundland and Labrador in this incredible achievement. When I read the numbers, my net gain number was 1,302 because some people absolutely did leave. The numbers are in and around 2,200 or something like that, factoring in the number of people that moved domestically or internationally. So. How how are my numbers on net gain so much different than what you just said? No, there were 1,300 ex-Canadians, uh, permanent residents, who chose from other provinces who moved to Newfoundland and Labrador, and our immigration from... Um, and our immigration numbers were in relative proportion to that, about 2,100. Uh, so we had one of the biggest quarters ever uh, of, of, of population growth from that point of view. And our overall numbers, Patty, uh, within the last 18 uh, months, within the last year and a half period, our population has grown by roughly uh, 6,000 people. So that's, uh, that's the report from Statistics Canada. Okay, there then comes the next questions, and people will always ask these when we talk about immigration numbers in particular, because, you know, there's a difference between someone with skills to go to work. There's a difference between someone who's working versus a retiree moving home. All of these things need to be factored into the conversation, not in the effort to be mean-spirited, but the reality associated with it. Let's start with newcomers. I'm told there are still newcomers in hotel rooms that arrived on the first uh, the first aircraft coming from Ukraine. So people point to we have a housing problem. So where are people living? 
So one of the issues that we have is that there are no federal government supports for Ukrainians that come to any province of, of, of Canada, any place in Canada. There are some who arrived in the charter that did not have strong language skills. So their ability to get employment at this point in time to be able to provide for their own housing needs is very, very, it's, it's limited. So remember, this is very much a humanitarian initiative. It is very much uh, assisting Ukraine in a time of need, as Newfoundlanders and Labradorians have always done. The vast majority were able not only to find employment, but find it very, very quickly. There are some that because of language uh, capacity are finding it a little bit more difficult to get employment, but that is the rarity, Patty. And in fact, one of the reasons why you're still seeing there's a particular hotel in St. John's that is, you know, the temporary home of Ukrainians. Um, you're still seeing Ukrainians there because we had a number of Ukrainians that came from other provinces Two new, who arrived in Canada, uh, arrived in other provinces, came to Canada, but are basically migrating again to Newfoundland and Labrador because they know that this is a a very very welcoming spot. We're building a Ukrainian community, and there are jobs to be had. We now have over 800 Ukrainians permanently residing in our province, and in fact. Uh, the ANC, uh, the Association for New Canadians, informs me that there's uh, that 50 more Ukrainians have registered to arrive this weekend, are re- registered with the ANC, coming this weekend to our province from other places in Canada because they want to, they are choosing to live here. So yes, there are some that have adva- you know, some disadvantages that we need that we are working with them to accommodate because the federal government is not supplying one dime of assistance to their to their upkeep. Uh, we've got to assist them in their language training skills so that they can get that job, so that they can pay for their own rent, for their own housing. That is a very, very small minority. And I understand the societal and economic upside of immigration. I understand humanitarian efforts, whether it be from Afghanistan or Ukraine. But nothing changes when they arrive, you know, so things like housing becomes a very complicated matter because we have a housing issue and then add to it health care. So, you know, I know there's a Ukrainian doctor or maybe more that are trying to get licensed to practice here and the college really needs to catch up. But with so many people that don't have a doctor, how are we attending to their health care needs? Well, first off, one of the, the Ukrainians are coming very, very healthy. Uh, you know, I'm not going to overstate that. Uh, but their draw or demand on the healthcare needs is um, in proportion. They are a much younger group than the average of Newfoundland and Labrador society. We, you know, we are basically a, a province with an average median age of an average age of almost 55 plus. 50 percent of the population is now approaching 55 plus. The group of Ukrainians that are arriving here are, generally speaking, very young. Uh, that impacts or influences their need or demands on the healthcare system, but but they're also we also have to remember some key points here. They're tax filers. They are taxpayers because they become impl- they when they work. So they're contributing to the overall economic and financial benefit of the province. But in addition to that, if we as a province continue to decline our population, if the tr- forecast that Statistics Canada and other agencies have forecasted for us were to remain true, the transfer 
transfers for health care payments from Ottawa to our province would continue to decline because Ottawa bases our health care transfers on population. So every time a Ukrainian comes to our province who's young, uh, who's uh, in the working age set, who's got skills to go to work, not only do they contribute taxes, but they actually bump up our Canada health and social transfer benefits from Ottawa, which have been in decline because of their basis on on, uh, on, on a per capita formula. So those are the kinds of benefits or counter-arguments that I offer. Uh, Are we working to get more doctors, nurses, and others in our province? Absolutely. That's one of the reasons why we're working with the colleges and the registrars of both the uh, College of Physicians and and the College of Nurses, the College of Licensed Practical Nurses, and all of the healthcare professions to recognize those credentials. You'll see a lot more activity on that in the, in the coming days and weeks from the government. But, yep, no, we've got immigration is not part of any problem. It's a part of every solution. Appreciate the time, Minister. All the best. God love. Thanks Take for care. the time. Pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Minister Jerry Byrne. Look, and when we ask questions about preparations on the ground, there are just the practical issues that we have to address and understand. Uh, and, you know, I speak when I speak favorably of immigration because I see the numbers quite clearly, whether it be across the country or in this province. And there is absolutely economic upside, and there, he's right. If you come young and ready and willing to learn the language, get the skills, go to work, which they are, great. But even things like fundamentals regarding housing. And I don't dispute the fact that immigration is part of the solution as opposed to the problem that many people paint it out to be. But we still have to put a roof over your head and give you health care when required, regardless of your age or who you are or where you came from. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Rob's got some ideas what they should have done with that one-time payment. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the professor in the Department of Economics at Memorial University. That's Dr. Lynn Gambin. Dr. Gambin, you're on the air. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So I'll I'll preface it with complicated issues require complicated solutions. Maybe this isn't as complicated as a one-time benefit going out for people earning the different numbers that we've been throwing around. When you first saw and read this announcement, what was your initial thought? Yeah, I wasn't surprised that it happened because we've seen other provinces do something similar, um, giving some transfers and tax credits to individuals or to households. Um, I think what we're seeing, though, is a trade-off between doing something quickly with as little administrative burden as possible so that it can be put into effect quite quickly uh, versus doing something very detailed that is really targeted and means tested in some way. So that kind of trade-off in a policy decision like this is always there, of course. Of course it is. You know, the two schools of thought on trying to get help to people, especially targeted help, is either do what the government did here, put thresholds of 100000 and one twenty-five for individual earnings, but or net family income as the measure. Which would be better targeted? Because, you know, I know there's people out there with $100,000 in earnings that have got the big house, the big car, the big bills, the big consumer debt load, and they're going to welcome that 500 bucks. But there's a school of thought I think is quite clear, is if you target it to the net family income, you probably avoid putting two $500 checks, for instance, in my son's hands, who don't necessarily need it because I pay the bills. Yeah, that's that's correct. That um, it's the household composition and the circumstances of individual households and families that really matters, because we would see a big difference between a household where you've got two earners that are right at the maximum and are getting the maximum benefit, but they've got household income of of two hundred thousand dollars, versus a household where they might have a hundred thousand dollars in income, 
and only get the one payment because they only have one earner or a household where they have one much lower earner, uh, but that's the only one earner and they're only getting $500. That's a big difference. Everybody likes to see additional money. I don't think we can argue that, but if it's about people who are finding it difficult to pay their bills, to feed their families, then yes, something more targeted towards the composition of the family and their, their circumstances would be more effective in that way. But it takes time. It certainly does. You know, there's going to be need for additional long-term solutions because this is very much the epitome of a short-term solution. How should we look at government's opportunity to do some controls on the other side? Because we really do not want government too deeply involved in the price of stuff. Some of the things that they regulate and apply tax to, the specifics regarding, say, gasoline and what have you, they have some wiggle room. But how can we view cost of living mitigations and removing some of those pressures? Because it's easy enough for government to give you some money, but that doesn't mean it's going to be any more affordable to live come January. Yeah, that's right. And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of clout in that area that we could actually pull some kind of lever to change the inflation rate for the province. A lot of well, most of what's going on with inflation at the moment is is a global issue, and it's well beyond the control of any policy measures that we could take here or the actions of all of our consumers in this province. Um, but you, like you said, there is a bit of uh, room there when we see taxes apply to certain goods and services. And those goods and services certainly make up a bigger part of the spending of different households and different households in different parts of the income distribution. But on the other side of that, making tax cuts on certain um, certain goods and services where government is getting revenue to run social policy and social programs and our healthcare system, that's, there's always that trade-off between what the revenue is being used for versus where it's easing the pressure on people at the point of consumption. And I, I'll probably use this phrase till the end of time. Complicated matters require complicated solutions. Easy ones are easy. We can all pluck those out of thin air, but trying to figure this out for the long term is going to be it's going to take yeoman's work and a lot of contribution from people, not necessarily sitting on the floor of the House of Assembly, but many of us, including people like yourself. Uh, I know one of your focus areas, Dr. Gammon, is the economics of education. From where I sit, you know, we poll people come election time. What are your number one concerns? And it's the economy and taxes and health care and the environment and climate change and whatever. And education polls way down there. As opposed to if education poll number one, we take care of a lot of those issues in much better fashion. So let's talk about the economics of education. For long-term sustainability, prosperity here it's going to rely in large part on education how should we be viewing that yeah for sure i i I really like this line of talk actually um you know developing people's human capital developing their skills even just basic education that gives them the the tools they need to live as well as they can is really important and that is a very long-term investment that needs to be made and it does like you said it often gets pushed down to number seven or eight in our list of priorities because we often think of the things that are most immediate that where we see it making a very immediate impact but we know that early childhood education is important for making people as they grow um, be able to support themselves financially be con- productive uh, contributors to society generally um, and economic growth overall requires human capital development and and that goes through all levels of education and training up to post-secondary and and into 
professional development throughout the life course. And curriculum in the K-12 system and course offerings in post-secondary have to be very nimble and change with the times. Gone for the most part of the days where your high school education is going to lead to a gainful, meaningful, prosperous employment uh, history. So how nimble do you think that the K-12 system and, for instance, Memorial University is in changing with the ever-changing times? Because like we talk, talked with Florian Viome the other day from TechNL, 5,000 jobs in that industry, or all the industries they touch in the next few years. Are we as nimble as we have to be? It's difficult for any institution like the educational system to be really nimble. And I don't think that's the job of the education system generally to keep an eye on where the labour market is going in, okay. in a very specific way. I think it's it's about making sure we have the core elements there and seeing how that's been changing over time. The long-term trend is that we're moving towards more automation. Um, the jobs of tomorrow are not the jobs of today and certainly aren't the jobs of yesterday. So I think it's about being awareness and seeing how the core curriculum can be changed in a way to make sure that we're setting up students for um, being able to undertake further education and training as they go on and being able to kind of maneuver themselves and and develop where they need to develop to get the jobs that suit them uh, when the time comes. And I think university has a little bit more leeway to actually design programs um, because they're dealing with people who are in the, the university who already have that that foundation of learning that they would have gotten this secondary uh, or in the compulsory schooling system. So there is a bit more um, maybe possibilities for universities and vocational schools to to be able to create programs that are a little bit more aligned with what we see happening in the labor market in two to three years. Um, but it is more limited. And I think employers pay, uh, play an important role here in making sure that they're providing training and educational opportunities for their staff, for new recruits and so on, to, to make sure they're able to meet the skills needs that the employers have and are able to uh, jump on opportunities for growth and, and new business development as time goes on. I I know we're scratching the surface on very complicated matters, but th- thus is the essence of time restrictions on this program and my poor old mind r- racing 100 million miles an hour. Uh, labor economics, record number of job vacancies in the country. Wages are not keeping up commensurate with inflation or the consumer price index. You know, that's the perfect storm. Once again, if employers do indeed raise, the, raise their wage offerings, we may indeed just see the outcome being a raise in the cost of their goods or services. Where is the sweet spot? I think that's a, that's something to be answered by those employers really about where where they can pay in terms of where their cost structures are and their operations. Um, it is difficult, and also I think what we're noticing, what's been really exacerbated with COVID too, is is that people are aware that it's not just about pay either. It's about a whole package of things that they get when they're mm-hmm. working that they weigh up when they're making a decision to work in one sector or another or for one employer or another. Tongue-in-cheek before we get to the news. Should the province tax uh, self-checkouts as if it was a human teller? Oh, my. I didn't expect that question. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't Sorry. thought that one through, so okay. I don't want to weigh in. Fair enough. But, yeah, I, I mean, automation is inevitable, and it's it's happened over a very long time. This is not anything new, that certain jobs become obsolete, certain skills become obsolete, and it's about having a, a potential workforce there that's able to move with that, too. I really appreciate the time this morning. Hopefully next time we'll take it in focus and deep dive on one feature of what you're working at at Memorial. Thanks for this. All right, thank you. Thanks, Dr. Gambit. Bye-bye. Dr. Lynn Gambit is a professor of economics at Munn School of Economics. Rob is patiently in the queue to talk about what we should have done. Oh, you want me to take him right now? Okay, fine. I can do exactly that. Let's go line one. Rob, you're on the air. 
All right, Patty. How are you today? I know you're. I know you're doing all right because you've already said it a dozen times. <laughs> Top shelf, man. So, uh, but no. Anyways, yeah. So, like all this money, like it's uh, you know the government saying the big windfall and all this stuff and that, and uh, they, you know they want to give back to people, which yes, some people do need it. But like our roads are atrocious here. Why didn't they put it to our infrastructure? Such as. Such as roads, like you know, like they're paved. They don't pave around here. They they mill little parts of the road that they got to dig up every year, and it's just an ongoing every every year. All the roads are shut down because they're milling little patches. Why not get our infrastructure back into place? Like the roads, like you know, like Holyrood Road, going out to Holyrood from CBS. Like that, that's absolutely atrocious. Um, I live out in CBS, so and uh, but the roads out there are absolutely atrocious. Why not put that money into making something better? Fair enough. What I would say to that specifically is that the gas tax was created for exactly that purpose. And at this moment in time, we take in way more in gas tax revenue than we do spend in paving roads and fixing bridges and that kind of stuff. So we've got a bit of a surplus if we simply look at road work and the bill associated with it and the gas tax. There's other infrastructure needs that are so blatant. And you're right. There's all kinds of options what we could do with $194 million, including simply put it against the debt. I mean, the forecast yes. deficit this year is $351 million. Net debt in the province is $17 billion. So there's lots of options. So I guess you weigh what it costs to service a debt versus the human capital and the human uh, struggles that we see today. So I don't know what the answer is. I don't pretend to. No, I know. It's just, but it's just frustrating. Like, you know, I just spent, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm going to get a $500 rebate. I just spent $3,000 on the front end of my truck to have it replaced because of the roads. Yep. Uh, that does not help me much. I hear you, brother. So I just wanted to throw that out there. You know, there, there's other options. Yes, there's some people that do need the money, the cash, whatever it is. But I think, you know, our infrastructure needs to be, you know, replaced <laughs> pretty much. Some of it absolutely surely does. I appreciate your points and your time and your patience this morning, Rob. Okay, no problem at all, Patty. We'll talk to you again. Look forward to it. Take care. Okay, bye. bye-bye. It is time for the news, but when we come back, we're going to say good morning to the Seniors Advocate for Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Susan Walsh. Of course, this is Seniors Week. They actually have a public engagement session coming up tonight. We'll find out more about that after this. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the province's seniors advocate. That's Susan Walsh. Good morning, Susan. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So you've been in the role for a little while, and this is indeed Seniors Week, and we'll get to the public session tonight. But I imagine I know the answer to this already, but I'll ask it anyway. What are the two or three items that are dominating the work that you're dealing with? So in the uh, consultations that I'm having currently with seniors, the three things I'm hearing probably the most about is access to health care. And not just access to the family doctor, though that's important. Um, seniors recognize that it doesn't always have to be a doctor. 
the expansion of the scope for nurse practitioners, nurses, physios, um, pharmacy, all of that, that, you know, they know they need the service and they can't get to it. And they're having trouble with, you know, uh, the walk-in clinics, the hubs in some areas, they're calling and, and wait lists, and they can't stand outdoors for an hour or two waiting to see if they can get in. That's That's a big one. The other, of course, is the cost of living and that, you know, they're they're living on fixed incomes and the food, the groceries, everything is just going up, up, up. And probably the next one would be home supports. You know, we all agree and want to see seniors remain as long as they can in their own homes, as healthy and able as they can, and accessing their communities. But the services you need to do that are including home supports, home support services, and they're hard to come by. I mean, there's agencies out there that are having trouble getting staff, and then there's trouble sometimes with the level of training, knowledge, skill level of those staff. Um, and in addition to that, even simple things like who's mowing your lawn, who's cutting your, you know, uh, shoveling your driveway in the winter, those what would seem to be simple things, but that's all really important if you're going to stay in your own home and there's no one available to do it for you. It's amazing how some of the worries become seasonal, isn't it? Yeah. It was all summer is the price of gas, and now it's the worries about the uh, winter and the colder temperatures and home heating fuels, and we know the province is currently negotiating our bilateral agreement to keep the carbon tax exempt uh, being applied to home heating fuels. So, so many balls in the air. Yeah. That is, it's almost even hard for me to know where to start. And you know, the cost of living, um, it's not just oil, right? That we've had people mention to us, well, you know, I heat by electricity, but you know, my electricity is going up. Um, I heat by uh, wood. It's costing more to buy the wood, getting someone to cut the wood, all of that. Always is. So the ongoing consultation included a public engagement session this evening. What are we focusing on tonight? So we've started a process that will see us travel the entire province because it's, it is important to get out and hear from seniors. And, you know, we started in Central with uh, Clarenville, Gander, Grand Falls. We've had packed houses at each engagement session. I have to say I'm so happy to see that, uh, you know, seniors are coming out and they're expressing their opinion. They have a lot to say. And, you know, when they're 47% of the province and they have the purchase power and they vote, <laughs> they know it. And so, and I say to them very clearly, I serve you. I'm paid to serve you. So you tell me your needs, and I will do my best to represent you. And so, you know, we are focused currently on uh, four key areas, transportation, health care, um, cost of living, and housing. And I, and I ask at the you know, end of walking through those four areas, I ask, what have I missed? Tell me what I've missed. Is there anything? And so for the most part, they are the four key areas. You talk about you work for them, and you're right, seniors are a powerful voting block, but for the first time ever in the most recent federal election, millennials outnumbered seniors, which is fascinating to me. Um, let's talk about, you know, you work for them. Not in this province. Not in this province. No, 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 on the national front. You're absolutely 100% right. So working for them, if you had your druthers, would the mandate and the structure of your office change for the better if you were able to work on particular specific individual cases or family cases versus the broad strokes of the major issues from 50,000 feet? Well, you know, it's a really good question, Patty. I'm in the job three months, and I've had that asked to me from day one, to be honest with you. And, and I am, you know, I am keeping an eye to it. I'm analyzing that to see, is that an area we need to go? You know, I am definitely hearing that there is no one 
organization that does individual advocacy for seniors. And, that, and I think that's accurate. I haven't heard anyone say differently, and I've asked. Um, what we do here is we take hundreds of calls a year from individual seniors or their family members, and we try to get them connected to others who might be able to help them with their issue. And But we'll always track the issue, and we roll those up then. If we hear from a number of seniors with the same issue, we go, hmm, might be a systemic issue here, and let's review that and determine if there is. So, you know, from my experience, where you can have the greatest impact for change is at the policy and legislative level. So I, I feel that is the most important role for this office. But is there a gap for seniors from an individual perspective? That's the piece I'm keeping an eye to. It's a tricky one because I guess if you have enough seniors, as you mentioned, speak to the exact same problem, then I guess the broad overview is an effective mandate. I was just curious right. of your thoughts on it. So how collaborative is your work with, say, 50-plus clubs, Seniors NL, and other umbrella organizations? Imperative. Imperative. I have to say, uh, you know, we couldn't do what we do here with a staff of four people, including me, uh, without all those partnerships. And I can't tell you how welcoming I have, you know, I have had a, a reception right across the province. I mean, we don't have arms and legs out in, you know, all the rural communities in this province. So we do depend on our all our relationships. And in St. John's, I mean, we've had lots of great conversations with and homelessness, food first, seniors and now, and we meet with them and we talk to them about what they're hearing and seeing for seniors, gathering place. I mean, all the partners, but as well, every session I've had outside of St. John's has been done in partnership with a community organization, most of whom outside of St. John's has, in, has tended to be the 50 plus organizations who are a very happening group. <laughs> Absolutely, and they play a critical role in the communities. Yes. Uh, last one, and this is a little bit off the beaten path. It's the concept of just how many seniors continue to have to or want to work. But yet, when you say leave your full-time job and you realize inside your retirement that maybe I have to go back to work, but find it difficult to get a job, people will refer to it as the great discrimination, the discrimination against the senior. What do you understand about that? And what do you think? how do you think we should be talking about that? Because it's very real. Like the retired seniors group that follow me and uh, give me uh, information on Twitter, they talk about exactly that all the time. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, this office took that on in a big way back in 2019 and held a senior summit uh, related to uh, older worker employment uh, in partnership uh, with Memorial University um, uh, and uh, with the Board of Trade. And the Board of Trade went on and did some work around that as well, and I understand that they've continued to do that, the St. John's Board of Trade. It is an issue. There's no two ways about it, and I know uh, uh, Mike Keogh is a, is a great resource as it relates to that. Uh, it is an issue in that... Are seniors working because they want to work or need to work is an issue I'm asking in the survey that we currently have uh, happening for our office. And if they want to work, can they get access to the work and are they kept, uh, you know, in positions that are fulfilling? Um, we know there's, you know, some issues as it relates to pensions. We know there's some issues related to health care benefits. And that is actually some of the things that my office has been doing some review on. And we anticipate having some information about in the, next, in the coming weeks. We are releasing a report in the next few weeks on the status of the recommendations that were in our 2019 report. And so um, you'll hear more from us about that at that time. I mean, I think the environment is right in that people are struggling, businesses are out there currently struggling to get enough employees. And we have seniors who have such 
broad knowledge and skills and expertise that you know the time is right to, that they might actually be able to uh, you know employers see the value in needing them uh, matches up but we also know that we need our programs uh, you know even government training programs to allow for seniors to get retrained in some areas you know the technology may have changed and they need that opportunity so while i know the training uh, you know is focused oftentimes on younger people we also need to make sure we're focusing on the senior as well absolutely for those in and around town and are interested in being involved in the public engagement session it's this evening at seven o'clock runs till eight thirty. it's at 10 bennett avenue here in the city of st john's open to the public all seniors welcome appreciate your time and the work you do susan Daddy, yes. why not take 30 seconds just to say we are also um going to be traveling to labrador the week of october 17th and we're all over labrador we're meeting with indigenous groups there is a session in goose bay on the 21st and in lab west on the 20th so i'd love to see folks get out and uh, you know we're again we're partnering with organizations we'll get some messaging out and we're on the west coast the last week of november we're happy to spread the word whenever we can help susan thank you very much thank you bye 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 susan walsh the province seniors advocate final break of the morning don't go away Welcome back to the program. Well, from the outside looking in, Philip Pritchard has the single greatest job in the world. He's better known as the keeper of the cup for the second time this year. The Stanley Cup is in Newfoundland and Labrador. This time, of course, yesterday out in Twillingate, headed for Gander in the preseason game between the Ottawa Senators and Montreal Canadiens tonight. And Philip Pritchard, the keeper of the cup, joins us on line six. Good morning, Phil. You're on the air. Good morning. How's everything? Couldn't be better. How about you? Doing great, thank you. We arrived uh, back in Newfoundland on Tuesday, and it's been a whirlwind 48 hours so far. Phil, is it a fair description to say that you have the greatest job in the world? Uh, no, not at all. I, I would much rather win the Stanley Cup and have the opportunity to bring it home. Absolutely. But I think, uh, I think like you and I, if you love getting up in the morning, you've got a great job. And I think I certainly can say that, and I'm sure you can as well. Absolutely. So yesterday I heard and saw a clip from the school, the J.M. Alls Collegiate. You know, they had a little game of ball hockey going and waiting for your cue to bring the Stanley Cup in, much to the pleasure of the students and the applause. That must never get old. No, you know what? It puts on so many smiles on the face, and... And from the outside of the gym, I could see the grade 12s playing uh, ball hockey in the gym and all the rest of the students were cheering them on and it was the first goal wins. And they won a, a class photo at the Stanley Cup. So I walked in and the place went crazy. But as I found out quickly, Twillingate is all about hockey and community and what a great place to have a craft hockeyville in Twillingate. Absolutely wonderful. And of course, the game will be great in Gander this evening as well. So on that front, you know, I'm sure you see the excitement in the children's eyes, but as someone, as an adult, the first time I saw the Stanley Cup, I felt like a child too. I bet you get a very similar reaction from adults. Yeah, and you know what? It's funny. I was talking to people yesterday, and when they're, whether they're 5 or whether they're 55 or 75, the emotions they have and the, the passion that the Stanley Cup brings to not only people in Newfoundland but all across the country and around the world is, is pretty special. I think it's so unique when they get to see it and experience. But most of all, they remember certain things, and then they share their memories as well. And being in the community yesterday in Twillingate, listening to the stories that the fans have of not only Toronto Maple Leaf fans, but Montreal Canadian, and they have a lot of Boston Bruin fans up there as well. And 
it was it was all about passion and and it was it was a great day i'm really glad to hear it i'm sure you get asked the same questions over and over and over but i'll ask you one i don't know if you've been uh, with before <laughs> is could the stanley cup structurally uh, ever survive another alex ovechkin summer <laughs> well you know what I, I think what alex ovechkin when when washington won the cup he released all his excitement at once on the ice there in Las Vegas when the Capitals won. And that I think that was so special to hockey fans to see his excitement come out. And all the players are that excited. Alex just kind of brought it to life. And I think anytime you have a Stanley Cup champion and they get a chance to uh, share it with family and friends and fans, they're all excitement. I mean, Alex took it to another level, but... Hey, like we said, uh, there was another Alex that brought it uh, home to Newfoundland this summer, and his day was pretty exciting as well. It was extremely special. He's actually a family friend of ours. We live on the same street. I've known Alex since the day he was born, so it was a really special time for me, the Newhook family, and all of our friends. You know, one of the things, everyone has a drink out of the cup as a winner of the Stanley Cup, and then, you know, the individual players will put whatever in. Cale McCarr had a really healthy meal. Alex Newhook put yeah. fish and chips. What are some of the weirdest things you've seen put in the cup to be consumed? Well, you know what? It's amazing, and and we look at it from the outside. But culturally, if you're if you're out east, it, it's often fish and chips or lobsters or clam chowder. If you go out west, it would be beef or something like that. Or, or as you said, Kale McCarr had healthy. If you go overseas to Russia, they seem to have caviar and pierogies and things like that. So they all seem weird on the outside. But when then when you hear why they have a certain thing like at lobster or tails or fish and chips, it, it means a lot to them and it's so special. So it's, I think when people see the, the drinks or the food in the Stanley cup, you, you can't really judge the book by the cover until you hear the story. And then, then it means a lot. And the guys that win, they have so much respect for it that it's something special each time that happens. Share a story with us, whether it be with a player who just won it or with an old-timer whose tears came to his eyes when he saw the cup again for the next time. Share a, a personal story that you'll never forget. Well, to me, uh, I think every time I get to bring the uh, Stanley Cup out on the red carpet and hand the Stanley Cup over to uh, Commissioner Bettman, who hands it to the captain, it adds a new chapter to the Stanley Cup. And if the cup could talk, it would probably be a bestseller, but We've been to 30 countries around the world now. And I think every time we go to a different country, it's something I'll never forget because you see the excitement in the fans. And really, it's it's Canada's game, and we're sharing it with the world. So to be able to do that, that's something I'll never forget. I think the white, the white gloves are a great touch. How many pairs have you gone through? <laughs> I, I wish my wife was on the phone right now because she'd be able to tell you because I've kept every one. They're all in my drawers at home. Really? Yes, I've kept them all. I guess I guess working in the Hockey Hall of Fame and being a curator, you tend to do that kind of stuff, and I've kept them all. I love my visits to the Hockey Hall of Fame, and I've thoroughly enjoyed having you on the show, Phil. I'm really glad you made time for us. Enjoy the rest of your stay in the province, and thank you very much once again. Hey, no problem. We look back to being back again soon. I hope so. Thank you. All right. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye. It's Phil Pritchard, Keeper of the Cup. That was great. All right, big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. Talk in the morning. Bye-bye.